So um, a man once told me, um, the only person I've had listened to this podcast told me when he listened to it um, that um, us calling us ourselves socialists is bad because um, he lived in the former Soviet Union and he mm-hmm. said that we would be the first ones put against the wall and we would get the bullet. Mm. So That you know. does a lot for my conscience, let me tell you. I'm ready for it. Give me the bullet. (laughs) (laughs) You'd rather have the bullet than the gas is what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. So save capitalism from neo-feudalism and then. And then. Say turn, turn capitalism into socialism rather than fascism. Yeah, that was the idea. So that we can get the bullet rather than the gas. Or me. (sighs) I don't know about you guys. You guys might be saved from the gas. That was that was a racism joke. She didn't, she didn't get it. I, I get jokes. Words of Homer Simpson. Basically, you got people who are hysterical about Trump. They say fascism, blah, blah. And we're saying, calm down. There's real shit we could be talking about. Mm-hmm. And I think gated communities of managerial little oligarchs with private security forces keeping poor people out and immunizing themselves against criticism by being able to point to their diversity quotas. I mean, that is the kind of authoritarianism. That's the realistic kind of authoritarianism we can expect. Yeah. Nobody's going to come to your door. I mean, I don't think a death squad's going to come to your door. Like, I've got a whole shelf of Karl Marx. Nobody's going to knock on my door and say, show me your books. And then they're going to say, oh, you're a commie. And then they drag me out in the street and they shoot me in the gutter. That's not going to happen. Right. What's going to happen is that I can't get healthcare when I finish my program. And then maybe I get cancer and die because I can't pay for it. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, though, so if we're talking about fascism and you're talking about Trump and you're talking about people being afraid of fascism, more realistically, you'd have to start, you know, um, with immigrants, um, basically, um, you know, Mexican and Central American and South American immigrants specifically, because those are the people that have been getting the uh the brunt of the fascism if if that's if we're talking about like um you know the 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 camps and you know incarceration and the brutality they're getting the brutality you know um the average person worrying about you know average white person in the suburbs worrying about um someone coming and knocking down their door and kidnapping them and their children not so much yet but I mean, um, everything starts somewhere. So, um, starting at the most hysterical seems to be not fair. Well, but, but think know? about that. If, think about the way you just formulated that. This, uh, his, this, uh, suburban people who are afraid that somebody's going to knock down their door and kidnap their family and their kids. 
Don't you think that that's just a late neoliberal version of what in the 1950s would have been the fear that some some black person is going to break into their house or move into their neighborhood? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's a weird, ironic way in which this hysterical fear of fascism now is just the same kind of middle-class anxiety that took the forms of, you know, anti-communist red baiting and racism. Like somebody out so, there just wants to fuck you up. That's what they think about. What they dream about is just coming and finding you, your little life and your little house. Want to break in there and they're just going to rape your daughter. Cause that's what they want. So first, first let's bullshit. localize. So, so right. We have to basically dissect this um, into the groups of people who may fear fascism and the way they express that fear. Right. So um, I can't really, I can't adequately speak to what, you know, um, a South American, Central American immigrant feels about the fascism or their family living here, how they feel about um, whether or not those camps at the border constitute as fascism. I don't I can't speak to that um, adequately. Right. Um, and. You can probably more adequately speak to. Um, you know, uh, I guess a white suburban person, their fears of what this fascism looks like to them and um coming from like a black perspective i would say largely people don't even call trump a fascist well in my small circles right. it's only the white people um, that are screaming about fascism like madeline albright but is it only the white people right because there's no um immigrants here at the moment um and so far in my life um i don't know I, I work with uh, rich people, so you have a class dynamic there that's missing a lot of components to it too. But they're 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 more right wing. So, um, but you know, I don't know. And then I guess a third part of it is you know with this fascism question, you know, we have to go to not just the uh, white suburban response to how this is fascism, but um, the people who seem to be screaming at the most aren't even the the, the white um, suburbanites. It seems to be the, the youth. Right. And if you're talking about that group, you're talking about like college students for the most part. And mo and that that's a multicultural uh, group. Okay, But then that throw in the university that Trump in is there. a fascist. You throw in the university in there. But I think by and large, the young people screaming about fascists are just the kids of the suburbanites. Um what I mm. what I was saying when people are like okay so the example of the immigrant who's might get thrown in a camp I don't think they say Trump is a fascism I don't think they fascist I don't think they frame it that way they I don't think they're worried about the the fascist threat what they're worried about is quite simply being thrown into a camp um, right the people who are screaming about fascism are the Washington Post New York Times Madeleine Albright James Jason Stanley <laughs> Yale philosophy professor these people mm -hmm. the discourse industry. And so the reason, indeed, it's not just, you know, white suburbanites who are threatened by fascism, but they're the ones who frame the problem that way, it seems to me, apart indeed from the university activist crowd. But isn't that, they're the same people who get to frame every single discourse, though. So if you don't have 
um, if you don't even have, um, I guess the the other groups of people have if if they don't have the ability to even add to the conversation, you never really hear them, right? So that's that's another thing. Um, but I guess since we only have, you know, the media discourse that we have, I guess we should start by speaking on that. It seems and like then, it would make sense. We got three things. First, what are the standard views of fascism? And we just go around. Second, what are the problems with those standard views? Just go around. And then third, what is a proper account of fascism? And then we just go around again. So mm-hmm. shall we do that? Sure. Okay. So what are some standard views? Uh, uh, what are some standard views of fascism? Like the people who are screaming about it, what do they think it is? Now. Right. I mean, I think it, it seems to be some mixture of uh, authoritarianism and maybe ethno-nationalism. So thinking about the state um, as being um, a representative of a particular race or ethnicity, right? Mm-hmm. So people are, I mean, white, uh, fascism and white supremacy often kind of get conflated. And and I think this is maybe facilitated by people like Richard Spencer who are calling for like an ethno state or Mm -hmm. something like, uh, you know, Europeans need to have a home or something. So he lends some credibility to their definition and fear of that. Right. Like the idea of America becoming a more diverse country. I mean, if you look at the statistics, you know, white, the white population in America is still like 75% or something. I mean, it's huge. Um, obviously the minority population is growing, but I think the, the fear, especially among the right and, you know, those who are embracing, uh, a kind of racialized reactionary sort of idea of the state, um, are definitely sort of, embracing a fear of like whites becoming a minority whites losing power things like this okay so you think basically the the people who are advancing a certain view of fascism which is prominent now are basically just talking about white supremacy i think so i think that the two are very it's very hard to talk about one without talking about the other and of course like you know the the nazi slur you know like calling someone a nazi that that gets played into it too, because obviously the Nazis had a very racialized uh, understanding of their project with respect to the Jews. Yeah. They wanted an ethno national mm-hmm. state. Yeah. All right. Daddies, what do you think a standard, what do you think is a sort of like standard view? What people think fascism is not necessarily what you think, but on top of what Adam was saying, um, Kind of another thing that comes out when people throw out fascism, I think first um, a way to summarize it on the left is um, on both sides, actually, is a fear of populism. So that seems to go into what fascism is for a lot of people, which is interesting. Um, And on the right, it seems to come out. They always throw the term fascism when they're talking about uh, freedom of speech. So the limiting people tend to talk about fascism by its characteristics. So on the left, it tends to come out as, you know, the white ethno state because the left's project is multicultural. So the enemy is something that's anti multicultural. Right. 
So obviously, when we're talking about fascism, as far as the Nazis, which is how most people understand it, it comes out as in opposition to a multicultural project, you know, to a violent degree. Um, and on the right, we also know that fascism was anti-freedom of speech, right? The book burnings and all of that business. Um, and for them also, I don't know why, but anti-religious, um, which I don't know if that even is a characteristic of fascism. So, you know, you have the freedom of speech component and the anti-religion component, and both of them utilize the word fascism for their separate projects. And basically, it's what elements of fascism are in opposition to their their projects. Um, so that's what I think about fascism. But I think uh, kind of going into, you know, the black community, I don't know if this would necessarily be fascism, but like the fear of a re-implementation of, um, I guess, uh, segregation or even to a further degree of that, apartheid. So I don't like these things, um, I guess when we get to a proper classification, because I don't even have a proper classification, I'd fall into that camp that just, you know, has, uh, I guess, a, a layman's understanding of what fascism is. I only understand the characteristics, basically. Um, and I generally, when you're talking about Republicans or you're talking about Trump and you're talking about fascism, when you're talking to black people, it more comes out with the characteristics of apartheid. So that's mm -hmm. another, that could be a whole different discussion, but mm -hmm. that tends to come out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, so in Germany, the fascists in Germany looked to the states for mm -hmm. the inspiration for their legal codes for apartheid. And so I think that did belong to that. But I think, I mean, before... I think a problem with a lot of the talk about fascism is that we got two things going on. We're mixing generalizations from the 1930s and 40s and then things from now. And uh, these are two different things. So, right. I mean, I would just say, I think the standard views of fascism, like if you read Umberto Eco, what he says, he's got these, this list of 13 or so features, sort of family resemblances, which different fascisms can share. Uh, but they don't necessarily have to have them all. You know, I think there's also Jason Stanley's book, uh, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them, and Madeleine Albright has a book about fascism. Basically, like, these are the sort of, like, thought leaders or the mm -hmm. opinion influencers or whatever. And basically, they seem to say something like, fascism is, I mean, first of all, it has to do largely with political ideology, opinions, discourse, rhetoric, ways of speaking and ways of relating to other people, mm -hmm. namely by distinguishing us, them, an in-group and an out-group and thinking in terms of friend and enemy, thinking in terms of power, identification with the in-group, uh, belonging. Um, and then there are other things like you know, understanding yourself as a victim when you're actually, you know, part of the majority Nationalism, xenophobia, origin myths, tradition, demonization of the of other groups, uh, you know, and again, it's all it's it's all sort of psychology, discourse, ideology. Um, I mean, rhetoric. I think, I I think mean, another big component too that people talk about is the cult of personality thing. Oh yeah, with respect to Trump. I mean, that's why Trump was posed a, a particular unique. Th um, sort of threat of fascism was because he 
he presented him, himself as a kind of figure mm-hmm. much in the same way that people, you know, I saw, you know, post articles about, you know, comparing Trump to Mussolini and, mm-hmm. and Hitler, like, you know, his rhetoric and his, his, his whole kind of style mm-hmm. that people could identify with in some respect. Mm-hmm. And that was very threatening. Well, if you, um, if you, if you limit consideration just to speaking and discourse and rhetoric, there could be some definite resemblance to yeah. like Mussolini or something. Yeah. But, but also Trump, I mean, this goes back to what Thaddeus was saying with respect to like free speech, like Trump's, uh, kind of assault on the media, mm-hmm. fake news. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, his, his attempts, I mean, you see this now with the, with the election, like his attempts to subvert, you know, democratic, mm-hmm. um, norms or rules. Like mm-hmm. everyone, you know, he lost the election by however many millions mm-hmm. of votes, but nevertheless, he wants to kind of subvert that and kind of just declare himself the leader nevertheless. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, fascism, a lot of it was just mafia style politics. Yeah. And he's definitely got that going on. And he said things. I mean, again, if we just limit it to, if we're only thinking about opinions and things people say, he said, you know, what did he say in his acceptance speech? He said, you know, the American people will no longer be ignored. You will no longer be ignored. Um, this is your victory. And and another time he said something like, I speak for you. Yeah. I mean, that kind of demagogic. Uh, Vox populi kind of thing. Yeah. That's so what. There's also the component, well, to, to expand it from the discourse, right? So there are other components of, of fascism. There's the militarism that comes with fascism, Mm -hmm. and there is also the protectionism that comes with fascism, right? So, um, more the protectionism is in Trump's purview than the militarism, but the the militarism in practice isn't as much there with Trump, and I don't know if that's because, you know, um, the military didn't take him as seriously, um, or... You know, in reality, he was less militaristic, Um, but the protectionism was definitely there. He was definitely pushing protectionist policy. That's why his whole trade war with China happened for relatively no reason why he was lashing out at um, uh, NATO. Um, For instance, he pulled us out of the Paris Climate Accord um, and, and, and all of that. So um, there are other elements with Trump and, you know, more so with Republicans that align with fascism. But I think at this point we would have to produce a more Mm -hmm. specific definition Mm -hmm. to say if it's a reality or if it's just, we're seeing these characteristics, you Mm -hmm. know, whether within discourse or um, actual types of practice of um, fascism that align with, you know, um, Trump, you know, specifically or American government governance at large, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. 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 I think so. Right. Trump's militarism and all of the show and pageantry around the protection. I think that is the, the show side of fascism. And I think if you're a North American liberal, you're only concerned basically in the signaling and the spectacle and the rhetoric and the discourse. You don't really think about these other things you're pointing to, like the real effects, um, the real causes. Um, it's all just political theater. And so, yeah, we should get to that. But 
before we do, let's talk about problems we see with the standard views of fascism, which seem to be limited to the sort of show side. Yeah. Like in terms of like the things we just said? Well, you know, I mean, basically it's some kind of, I mean, it seems to me that what these people have in mind who are screaming about fascism is a sort of ethnically charged right-wing populism. Right. Because that's what, I mean, if you go back, I mean, they act like, they act like fascism is a sort of ahistorical category. Like it stretches all the way back to like medieval pogroms, like anti-Semitism. Yeah. And so on the one hand, it's this really general ahistorical thing. On the other hand, it's very specific in the, it started in 1909 and it, and it was destroyed by allied powers with the exception of Spain, Portugal, um, and Greece in the second world war and maybe Latin America. Um, that's very specific. And so they're trying to have it two ways, it seems, but yeah, I mean, what are the problems with this? I'd say general opinion, I guess, of what it is like all the things we named, you know, nationalistic, xenophobic origin myths, demonization of immigrants. I, don't, I mean, they don't give a coherent account, do they? Authoritarianism, like the right wing thinks language policing is fascism. Like, yeah. So wouldn't it be a little bit uh, to be a little bit more fair? Um, because. You know, a thing is only what people generally. Ha I mean, there's an academic definition of a thing, but then that can change based on people's understanding of a thing. Right. So if there is a new type of a new definition for fascism, that's something else to explore, because, um, you know, people's understanding, I, I guess I guess that's not necessarily um, I don't know if that's worth exploring because people do the same thing with socialism. And that would just mean that fascism could mean anything at that point. But um, so let's 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 um, put that aside and just keep on going with um, what would be the actual definition and what is kind of the lack of understanding? Because for me, I don't have a clear understanding of what fascism is and I don't tend to care about having a clear understanding of what fascism is. Because how I always interact with the world is what's happening. And um, if calling something fascism uh, makes the uh, negative thing stop, then have at it. Call it fascism all day. Right. But if it's having um, if, if that, um, I guess, um, lack of clarity is and that ambiguity is just allowing people to um you know police each other in unproductive ways then i think that's worth discussing um more than the definition so I mean, so you got a very practical attitude about it but i just want to i think it's worth lingering on the shortcomings of the standard views of what fascism is because right. Because if there's not a problem with them, there's no reason to propose an alternate account, which is supposed to be more accurate, right? So it only makes sense to give a better definition of there's a problem. Second, a little anecdote or whatever, um, just a funny thing. I mean, I remember talking to a colleague once, um, something Heidegger came up and the person said, oh, I'll never teach Heidegger. Or I never read Heidegger and I'll never teach Heidegger. 
And I said, why? And the person said, well, because he's fascist. And at the time, in my first response, I mean, never say this to a colleague, I guess. It's just, it's not the code of the road. I said, that's a little dogmatic, don't you think? <laughs> that was just like spoiled. I just spoiled. I mean, it was like instantly rotten sour face. But, but in hindsight, my thought is, how do you know you're not a fascist if you never read them? You don't have to teach it, but it's your duty as a thinking being to figure that out. I understand the practical concern. Like if it's efficacious to call that fascism and defeat it, then that's what we're going to do. You've already sort of transitioned into political mode and that's totally kosher. But I mean, somebody's got to, somebody's got to, wouldn't you agree? Somebody's got to cut through the noise and bring things into focus so that we can be efficacious. Do it. You do it. Well, we're I mean, not there yet. We're not there yet. I mean, it seems to me that like the, it seems to me that the, the major issue with a lot of the standard view is that it doesn't really have a uh, concept of political economy. Mm. Like that rarely comes into play. Mm. It's mm -hmm. just the sort of aesthetics or the outward kind of performance, you know, the discourse aspect of it. So like something like protectionism. Well, it's perfectly plausible to have a protectionist attitude and not be a fascist country. And in fact, maybe be a socialist country. I mean, this mm -hmm. was one of the big problems with a lot of Latin American countries and that we were always kind of overthrowing because they had protectionist policies and we wanted access to their, mm -hmm. to their natural resources. You know what I mean? This well, is every why capitalist we're economy is born in protectionism. I mean, right. England had protectionism at home. And laissez-faire free markets abroad, and they would force other people to be free market, and then they'd protect their own. American capitalism was born in protectionism. I mean, the I think the most protectionist period of American capitalism was precisely its most pros prosperous, right? I mean, between 1945 and 1970, I mean, we were very protectionist. That too, but I even mean before you had f like federal deficit spending on infrastructure in order to basically cut costs for capitalist entrepreneurs. You know, you use the roads, you use the Mm -hmm. postal system. You use all that stuff. And if all those corporations had to pay all for all that out of their own pocket, they never would have been, been, been able to get going. Yeah. So, I mean, American capitalism was born through, um, on the one hand, federal expenditure on infrastructure that cut costs. So capitalists got a free ride there because currency creation is a thing. Mm -hmm. And secondly, on protectionist measures, uh, which, which, which benefited them. And right. so, and then we opened up and then we started the laissez-faire-ish thing, which was never really what it was sold as. But yeah, anyways. Right. So, I mean, I, I just think that that's, it seems to me that when people talk about fascism, it's rarely tied to a kind of uh, material, like, you know, what is this uh, worldview thinking about with respect to the economy with workers, you know, with, with all of those things, it's always mm -hmm. just kind of about, I mean, like militarism, mm -hmm. America has been a militaristic country for forever. I mean, Rome I mean, and Sparta were militaristic. Were they fascists? Right. Right. I mean, my God, like we spent how many years in Iraq? I mean, that's, you know, are we a fascist country for invading Iraq? I mean, some, some people might say, yeah. Well, but that's already beyond discourse. I mean, FDR's definition, again, I mentioned it before, 
FDR's definition of fascism is when a private group of people owns the public government, basically. So by that standard, Sparta for sure would be fascist. Hmm. Um, Rome, I don't know necessarily. Um, it's an empire. There was oligarchy, families, um, and generally you got access to um, the economic structures of Rome through um, military service. Um, auxiliaries um, were basically parts of the Roman legion that weren't Roman. And if they served a certain amount of time, at some points they could become Roman in Roman history. And at other points, their children could become Roman if they were auxiliaries for long enough. Mm. Um, so if we're using FDR's definition, Sparta, it, then, then fascism is old, right? And that's, that's right. true of everything, right? Well, there's yeah. proto-capitalism. There's proto-forms of everything because these things don't come from nowhere. It's just mm -hmm. that you said in 1909, if mm -hmm. I heard you correctly, that's when a definition was applied to those structures. Um, so what made, um, 1909 different than, you know, what people now who bastardize the term fascism, what makes them different than all those other structures? What makes fascism unique? Yeah, that's a danger, right? You, like if, if it becomes such a general definition that Sparta's fascist, then, then, then our view is so general that it's not going to be able to do much, um, it might have been 1919. I'm not sure. But at any rate, it was in Italy in either 1909. Yeah, 1919. It was April Mussolini, 5th. right? Yeah. So I'm, I've got uh, Robert Paxson's book, The Anatomy of Fascism, here. On April, April 15th, 1919, soon after fascism's founding meeting at the Piazza San Sepolcro, a band of Mussolini's friends, including Marinetti and the chief of the RDT, Ferruccio Vecizzi invaded the Milan <laughs> offices of Socialist Daily Newspaper Avanti. So, yeah, I think it's 1919. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's got to be more specific because, I mean, if, I mean, obviously fascists appeal, use, use the aesthetic of Roman legions and so forth. But I mean, if oh, you're totally, going to consider yeah. Romans. I mean, the Roman salute, I mean. Yeah, for instance, if you're going to, yeah, and if you're going to, and if, if if it's just a bunch of appearances and rhetorical gestures and images, if that's all fascism is, then fine. But that doesn't explain anything and it's too general. I pick anything out. The problem I see um, with this, all the views that people are throwing around about fascism, I, I agree with you. It has to be rooted in political economy because we need to explain this. Mm -hmm. I think most people think of fascism as an ideology Right. Like a belief system, a set of opinions, mm -hmm. which a person chooses and on the basis of which they act and they're morally culpable for their actions. So it's basically presupposes a liberal view. You have individual actors who can behave correctly or incorrectly. That doesn't explain anything. It just makes people responsible for their behavior. And it doesn't say like, how did this come about? Right. It doesn't explain it. The other thing though, I mean, so there's no explanation at all on that view. You just... The other thing, though, that I think is a real problem is these, you know, sort of high liberal Democrat voices who are saying this stuff, um, they, they, they say politics is based on consensus and um, almost like a social contract mm -hmm. and compromise. 
And fascism thinks in terms of us and them and friend and enemy. That's fascism. We don't do that. The thing is, push comes to shove. They're going to have to admit fascists are their enemies and go to war. And then us, them, friend, enemy isn't just a fascist thing. That's politics. Yeah. And so there is no alternative. That's not a fascist thing. That's politics. And so when they do this, these standard views of fascism are just liberalism. They don't want an explanation and they don't want real politics. When they do this, um, they make politics impossible. Um, it ignores capitalism as well. It just wants obedience. And, you know, it thinks basically right populist rage is fascism, but there's way more to fascism. Um, you know, it's specific to the industrial Fordist Keynesian era. <laughs> right? Um, Trotsky had something to say about fascism. I think that's... What was what did Trotsky say that <laughs> what did, uh, Trotsky said? Um, I think Trotsky's saying it. Trotsky mm, the cat, right? What did Tr Trotsky the the troublemaker um, said that fascism is what a failed working class revolution? Behind every mm. fascism is a failed working class revolution, right? Anywho, well, I mean, what was Son Rathel's? You know. Yeah. So let's his, get to his the proper understanding account. of fascism, which I, I still think is probably the most coherent mm -hmm. because it is precisely an explanation. Mm -hmm. Like, why did Germany do what it did? Mm -hmm. It wasn't because they just decided like this was the best way to do things. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't just have a set of beliefs and they thought this is the set of beliefs that we're going to have now. Yeah. I mean, it isn't ultimately about opinions and beliefs. It's, um, it was necessary in a certain sense if they were going to continue on. Yeah, I think. Um, so. Son Rathel's take. So Alfred Son Rathel wrote a book called Intellect. Um, not that book. Intellectual Manual Labor is the one he's known for. He also wrote Economy and Class Structure of German Fascism. Mm -hmm. And I just forwarded a thing to you. I've sent it to you before, Adam. The Son Rathel quote? Mm -hmm. You just want me to read up until what the... Oh, you can read the whole thing. Okay. What is the, quote, fascist economy? In Germany in the 30s, the situation put pressure on firms like the Steel Trusts, which had a thoroughly rationalized economic union, and which could only continue to exist if Germany transitioned into an economy of war and armament. This meant an inversion from profit on the basis of creation of values, into profit on the basis of the destruction of values. It became the acute coercive threat for the leading sectors of monopoly capitalism inside and outside of Germany. It is what I call a, quote, fascist economy. The details of this dialectic are clarified in my book, The Economy and Class Structure of German Fascism. It is one of the results that can develop from the contradictory consequences of monopoly capitalism, which have developed, as a matter of fact, out of late capitalism. How, these, how have these consequences played out since the, world, the Second World War, for which they have played no innocent role? This question looks pessimistically into the future. And then there's a footnote. I must explicitly emphasize that what I am calling fascist economy here may not be misunderstood 
as a core definition of national socialism. National socialism, as I encountered it, was a lower middle class mass movement that was driven to extremes in fanaticism by the irrational reaction to inflationary impoverishment. His thing was basically that German, there was a bankrupt group of very wealthy, influential German capitalists who invested all their money in heavy industry. So capital goods markets. Yeah. And then after the war, the country was so burdened with debts, reparations, um, war, war costs. And it was so just completely fucked. There were no markets for those heavy industrial goods. I mean, so producing the means of production, not producing the means of individual consumption. So for instance, they couldn't sell steel. There was no market for steel. People can't eat steel. And so, you know, if they just owned all those steel works, then it would have just been a sunk cost, a loss. They'd just have to swallow it. A lot of them though, bought that on credit. So they owed that to finance capitalists, to finance capital. And so the issue was that, so this is where it gets a little tricky. Um, steel works, you can't turn them on one day off the next day. So if your markets, if there's not enough demand for your products, see, here's the problem. If there's not enough demand for your products, you can't slow down production. Steel works need to be on all the time. It's not a light switch. You can't mm -hmm. just turn it on. If you turn it off and back on, you'll break it. And that thing is worth like, I don't know, a billion dollars. Yeah. So you need to produce at a high rate of productivity and then your unit cost will come down, right? So it's cheaper to produce a thousand times uh, something than to produce one. It's hard to believe, right? But the, the idea is the unit cost comes down when you produce at a higher rate. And so they were producing more than the market could absorb because when they would produce less, the unit cost, so the profit they get per unit in relation to their debt, it would go up. So they had incentives to produce as much as possible. Sorry, this is a little boring. But they were producing way more than the market could absorb. And so basically what they had to do was bend the market to fit the industrial needs for profitability. Whereas in the laissez-faire era of traditional capitalism, I mean, if there's no market demand for your goods, you just go bankrupt. Right. And so how did they do it? Well, I mean, they dominated European markets, but they also, um, one way to get people to buy steel is to sell bullets. And the only way to keep selling bullets is to keep using them. And so the needs of, the needs of uh, German... Industri heavy industrial capital and finance capital meant you have to go to war. Right. Perpetually. Mm -hmm. He calls it the, the fascist economy is the war economy. Right. He calls it uh, production of destructive, non-productive destructive values, values which don't produce or reproduce other values, but which destroy other values. Right. I mean, and, and that's what's kind of interesting is that, you know, if you want to take that definition and apply it to something like military Keynesianism, which America has been mm -hmm. involved in for a long time. I mean, mm -hmm. the the arms race that mm -hmm. took place throughout the 20th century, and then obviously, you know, all of our, I mean, we had a big recession after 2000, and what's a good way to get out of a recession in the early 2000s? Well, you go to war, because mm -hmm. you, you pump up that industry, you know, mm -hmm. you start producing tanks and all sorts of other things. Mm -hmm. Um, and that stuff is going to be used up, you mm -hmm. know, abroad mm -hmm. in a 
foreign conflict. Mm-hmm. Well, the arms race is the classic. Yeah. I mean, if you don't want to like, you know, if you don't want to invest in infrastructure in a way that helps people, basically, you just want to give crony contracts to weapons manufacturers. Um, you just have an arms race and, you know, every time Congress approves a budget, they just create that currency by, and they circulate that money into the economy by purchasing these tanks and so forth, mm-hmm. monetizing those things. And what that means is just a blank check for weapons contractors. And that's what the Cold War was. Subsidizing heavy American industry through uh, currency creation and uh, arms. And so maybe you don't use them, right? In the Cold War, we didn't use them. They'd go obsolete and we'd replace them. But the, but the consequence is that we've got like, I don't know, 100,000 nuclear warheads. You only need one. Right. We only got one planet. Right, 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 right. So back to the definition, um, I was trying to look up quotes, so I missed like half of what you guys were saying, but, um, um, the war economy can't necessarily, that that can't be fascism either. If we're trying to narrow it down. Right. Mm -hmm. Because again, that goes back to Rome, a war economy, you expand, um, imperially. It's kind of like, Mm -hmm. this is where the origin of currency is, right? Mm -hmm. Currency generally you know, how it functioned is it wasn't a way of bartering. That's not what currency is for. Mm-hmm. Currency is basically to pay for social works. Mm-hmm. So if you were Rome, you would go into Gaul and you would colonize them. And the first thing you would do um, would be to make them pay you um, or you would you would pay them for their their um, tribute. Mm-hmm. You would give them currency in return. So Mm -hmm. then the next cycle through, if they ever wanted to buy anything from Rome or if they ever wanted to pay tribute again, Mm -hmm. they'd have to pay Rome in that currency. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how that expanded and how it expanded even further is Rome goes in with its military. It pays for the military with this currency. And then that that's that's a war economy. Mm -hmm. So the war economy isn't fascism either. I think um, I'm trying to remember you were saying something before about what fascism was. Um, well, but I think there's a distinction there though, because right. You're talking about imperialism. Right. And it's like, I mean, Michael Hudson talks about super imperialism, like America spends dollars in foreign economies to build a air force base. And then, you know, what are they going to do with those dollars? They basically have to use them to either buy our agricultural products to keep them dependent on us, or they buy our bonds, which means they just give it right back to us. If the promise to get more of them in the future, what the hell are they going to do with them? Just buy more bonds. Um, and so you've got that currency imperialism that I see a continuity, the, the, what you're talking about Rome and what's happening with uh, American dollarization and stuff now. But I think Son Rathel meant something more specific. Capital is tied up in heavy industrial production, and when you can't find markets, you have to create them. And that was the era of monopoly capital. I mean, we could contrast that with now. I mean, for example, like, why haven't we haven't had another war like that? Well, I think, for instance, now, because the composition of capital in global capitalism has... I mean, okay, so we are stuck with the oil industry. Yeah. You could make that claim, like, Sonrathal style, like, there is so much capital tied up in all those oil rigs, the Middle East, all of it bombers, uh, Israeli army, you know, there's so much capital in there that if that ever just became a sunk cost and we put oil behind us, those people would go mega bankrupt and that would be a major problem. 
But I think, I mean, capital has become so financialized that if they go bankrupt, you just have more currency creation, do some QE, and then you inflate those prices right back up there and they're fine. So we can complain about financialized capitalism for lots of reasons. But one important difference is that um, we're not going to be pushed into war by bankruptcy through financialized means because you don't have to start a war to, to sell bullets when financial, when hedge funds go bankrupt, you just create some currency and give it to them. Yeah. So I, so I think that's the differentiating feature. And for, from Son Rathel's perspective, it's the way that the threat of bankruptcy due to capital investment uh, compels people to go into war. And so that's different from, I mean, it is imperialistic, but it's different from like Rome and it's different from now. And so from his point of view, um, I think fascism was a very specific, historically specific thing. And, and it would, we would be better off to think about what the present threats are specifically and come up with a name for them rather so, than j- just calling them fascism. If I'm hearing what you're saying, and this can kind of push us into the next part of what we were talking about, mm-hmm. is basically fascism cannot um, manifest um, in an economy that isn't based off of industrialism, mm. right? So fascism comes out of industry because there's not there's not enough markets internally for the steel that they're producing or whatever you're manufacturing. Mm-hmm. So you create markets through war. And through imperialism, that's a tool for fascists um, rather than, you know, the goal of a fascist um, to sell these goods. Um, Basically, it's 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 um, the state utilizing war and imperialism to prop up Mm -hmm. industrial markets. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't necessarily work if it's the state trying to prop up financial markets. That's something different than Mm -hmm. fascism. Um, right. And that's, so, all, that's also kind of an interesting contrast with respect to the f- sort of populism thing. You know, you have populism in the thirties and you have a bunch of people who are really angry. You have to give them something to do. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to create markets, you have to get higher, you know, you, you employ these people mm-hmm. primarily through the war economy, et cetera, et cetera. But now like financial capital doesn't have to listen to populists. It can just it can mm-hmm. just create money to satisfy its debts, its debts, and then the the, the populist uprising gets nothing in return. Mm-hmm. You know, we, you can just keep immiserating people for. I, I mean, I, I doubt you can do it forever, but the point is that, like, mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen with a bailout in two thousand eight. We saw with, I mean, any time there's any form of stimulus, it always goes to the to the financial markets, and m- most people get very little and they're very upset. But at the end of the day, like, what are you gonna what are you gonna do? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, isn't we're not, that we're not giving them to do anything? So, isn't that the second component of fascism? Where, why, why couldn't you have a fascism based off of financial markets? Because, well, it wouldn't be based off of financial markets necessarily, but in opposition to the rise of financial markets, right? Isn't that kind of something that can sure. can come about? Because mm. w- the other part of fascism was the populist part of fascism, right? right. Um, we don't have these markets. Well, us regular people. Mm-hmm. We're not getting any of the, the the benefits of our society. There's not enough to go around and we're feeling feeling this immiseration. So um, another part of it's not like fascism has a part of it that's about, um, you know, the ruling class or the rich 
being, you know, the 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 pillars of society. Mm -hmm. Right. It has a very um, working class. The working class is the pillar of even a fascist society. Mm -hmm. Um, So that violent opposition to the financialization of the United States Mm -hmm. That maybe that's what people are afraid of being fascism. Fascism could be a product of that because if someone decides to militaristically take over those financial markets or those those functions of the state, um, and to basically try to reinstitute um, industrialism through protectionism, mm-hmm. you know, bring back the jobs and through keeping certain people down over other people. I don't know why that couldn't turn into a new form of fascism. Well, yeah, that's the show side. And so, I mean, it's true. Financialization, global finance does tend to piss off local people who, who jobs get outsourced. And then you have right populist nationalist outbursts and people say, oh, look, fascism. Yeah, okay, but that's right nationalist rage. Um, the question is whether right nationalist rage is fascism. Um, similarly, with the account I present, you know, so on Rachel's account, I was talking about before, for him, war is an important part of it. And the question is, do you think war is an important part of fascism? I mean, if you think fascism is just working class rage. No, I'm saying the product of that working class rage. Well, right? I think, so if that yeah. working class rage produces um, war, you know, as an outlet for that rage. But and working as class well rage as a way doesn't of- produce war. Steelworks produce war. That's the question. Because okay. if they don't, I mean, that, okay, so this. True or false, you decide. But his claim is that, let's say, the entire, the entire heavy industrial sector of a nation is up to its eyeballs in debt, and either it produces something made out of steel, or they all go bankrupt, and you nationalize it, or you have socialism. And obviously, the capitalists don't want socialism. They don't want to be expropriated, so they're going to find a market, so they're going to do it. Now, you could say, okay. we still have that. The American military-industrial complex has a blank check. The, this, the Congress approves a budget. It's not like it's not like they ever have any Hummers or flak jackets or M16s or, or, or um, F16s that aren't sold at the end of the day. The government buys as many as they can make, right? Yeah. And then the government just monetizes that through currency creation. And so you could say that the you could say that we have a fascist economy in that respect, um, because you know if they ever you know if we nationalize the arms industry and they just quit giving this blank check to those people um, that would, that would shut it down. It also really hurt the American economy because I think that's the point of entry for a lot of money into our economy. So I think we're getting at something because I think the reason why America never became fascist because America always had the frontier. So I think, I think kind of the evolution isn't really like a failure of um, I've heard a definition of that fascism can't come about until there's a failure of a socialist state. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. or a socialist project. But I think um, I think fascism more or less comes about with the degeneration of imperialism. Mm. And it didn't happen in America because America always had the frontier to expand into. So it's kind of like, we can go back to Rome. Um, Rome always had somewhere to expand into and when it couldn't expand, it kind of fell apart. Mm-hmm. Um but America has always had somewhere to expand. We had World War II, which was an expansion of, you know, American power um, after the frontier. Um, and we never really had to degenerate into a, a way of expanding our markets um, 
you know, in, in, in the same way that that Germany did through, you know, selling it necessarily through war. The war was kind of a way to find markets not to create a market or mm-hmm. to find resources for the United States. It's not really the, the war economy in the United States doesn't necessarily function as a way of selling goods. Right. Well, we kind of do that with other people's wars. We, yeah, we okay. sell most of our arms. We don't utilize most of our arms. Right. So right. the the way that America does it is expanding, you know, the imperialist project by saying, hey, you buy our arms, mm-hmm. not we need to use these arms that we're manufacturing. That mm-hmm. seems to be more of mm-hmm. the fascist project, which is a little bit more protectionist. And mm. I think one of the fears of the United in the United States is that we're we're running in the world, right, uh, worldwide, is that the imperialist project is reaching its end. There mm. isn't enough world left to, um, you know, carve up. Um, there's mutually assured destruction. So you can't just go in and, you know, uh, start a war with China and force them to buy your goods. Mm. Right. You can't do that anymore. So I think people's fear is that fascism is going to take the place because imperialism is imparted by the state. And I think there is something to be said about that populist aspect of it, because mm-hmm. the fascist isn't really um, uh, basically like a ruling class deciding that we need to expand markets. It's basically a compromise between the ruling class and the populace saying we need to basically sell these goods that we have left in mm-hmm. order to keep these people from tearing us apart or from taking these things for themselves. So they make that compromise and you get this more protectionist form of imperialism. So it mm-hmm. seems to be that fascism is an evolution of of a failed imperialism, right, mm-hmm. of the end of imperialism. So I think it's a legitimate fear in the United States since we're reaching the end of imperialism, whether or not that... Um, you know, a uh, uh, white, um, you know, populist anger can turn mm-hmm. into fascism. I mm-hmm. think that's legitimate. But at the same time, I think the second part of what we were going to talk about, the um, neo-feudalism aspect of it mm-hmm. um, comes into play because another remedy that we're seeing on the financial side to the uh, white populist anger um, could be that the white populist anger or populist anger at large isn't enough to produce either socialism or fascism. Mm-hmm. And it's just going to basically degenerate into neo-feudalism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I think there's one thing you said I really want to pick up on and I agree with and want to sharpen. And there's one thing I'd want to sort of tweak. So I think, okay. So I wouldn't say that fascism is the failed failure of imperialism as much as I would say it's the failure of industrial monopoly capitalism. You got a bunch of invested, you so say you take out loans, you invest that capital in heavy industrial works. You don't have a market for it. You're either going to go bankrupt, let's say fair style. You're going to get nationalized like Republic or, or the or communism. You can have mm-hmm. a planned economy and you're just going to be shit out of luck. Yeah. And so it's failed, um, failed capitalism industrial, specifically industrial capitalism, which pushes in that, which motivates, uh, capitalists to, to adopt fascist measures. Um, but I think you're right. You drew an interesting distinct distinction there. Like, 
So, okay, we have a fascist economy in America, maybe, because it's an arms-producing economy. The distinction, though, is that we're not the ones primarily using those weapons. We get other people to use them. Mm -hmm. And we say, we'll give you aid, which is to say we create some currency by by entering a larger number in your balance in the central bank, the the Federal Reserve. If you just take that take that money, that aid that we give you, and give it right back to an American arms manufacturer. So we got right. a fascist economy, but unlike Germany, we aren't the ones primarily pulling the triggers and shooting the bullets. Right. We get other people to do it. So that's an interesting distinction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's important. So maybe we have a fascist economy. It's actually something similar happening with the oil industry. Fascism, the way that it appeared in, in um, Germany and Italy. Yeah. I mean, the oil industry is doing something similar where- you know, America is now an exporter. You know, we're, we export more oil than we import at this point, mm. primarily through fracking mm-hmm. and all these things. We're sending that oil and we're getting country developing countries like India, who's trying to mm-hmm. kind of kickstart its own industrial uh, revolution. You know what I mean? I mean, they're trying to move toward green energy, but in the mid, in the meantime, they need a bridge between fossil fuels and green energy. Mm-hmm. And we're just, you know, we're, we're immiserating all sorts of places in Mm -hmm. America. We're poisoning people with, Mm -hmm. with fracking. Um, and then we're just shipping it off. And again, because there's so many sunk costs, so much investment in the oil industry that these people are faced with a situation where they either go bankrupt or they force people to buy their shit. Right. And I mean, that's similar to the industrial situation, but okay. So now going in the direction that that is, you're pointing neo-feudalism. What's that? Um, a person might say, but we're talking about, that's a perfect transition because before I was saying like, it's doubtful that we'll see that kind of fascism as it appeared when people called, like the people who called themselves fascism, fascists, that was a, that was a very specific situation in the global political economy. Mm -hmm. It's doubtful. We'll see that again. Why? Well, in the meantime, we've had extreme financialization and you know, when financial markets go sour Basically, let's say you got a bunch of banks buy a, give a bunch of people mortgages. Those people can't pay them. The bank forecloses on all the houses, but nobody's buying anymore. So then they can't sell the houses. So then the banks go uh, belly up. Ring any bells? Sound familiar? <laughs> the the Fed just basically buys all those bunk mortgages, which is to say, creates currency to gives to the banks, so that they don't go bankrupt. Bottom line is that doesn't involve forcing anyone to pull any triggers. Mm-hmm. And so the financial sector has become detached in a certain sense from the industrial real economy in a way that sort of precludes that old school fascism, even if Trump is, I mean, first thing I thought of when Trump said he's going to do product pr- protection for the steel sector is all right, who's your friend in the steel sector? Like this, this is kind of fascistic. You're doing this for steel. That sounds like Germany, but I mean, bottom line is capitalism in the, in America is so financialized that the threat of bankruptcy is just going to cause more quantitative easing. It's not mm-hmm. good. Right. You know, the, and, the industry won't have to go to the fascists to get their, to, to secure their business or their profits. They just ask the government for more money. And since the government is willing mm-hmm. to give them more money and since mm-hmm. the people um, that that government is comprised of or who vote on that government are mm-hmm. so, you know, used to, or, you know, acclimated to quantitative easing as a solution they don't they don't people aren't going to rise up when you know 
They didn't rise up the first time the banks got bailed up. They're not rising up this time that the banks got bailed out. Um, financialization. Yeah. Here and there. Not, not Occupy, to, Tea Party. I mean, that, sure, it's, not, but, it's not an uprising, but it's a little, no. just a little indignation. Yeah, but I mean, um, if they just apply that quantitative easing, which industry is begging for that they apply that um, quantitative easing a little bit, they spread it out a little bit more to working people in order to appease them. You can just use the financialization of the market to to keep people going. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do, um, you know, a military mm-hmm. um, action mm-hmm. in order to secure these markets. You don't have to request help from the military. You don't have to uh, request help from a populist movement. Um, so there's no compromise for business because they just lobby the government mm-hmm. and the government deals with the people. Mm-hmm. Right. And and I think that's where the... Um, of like neo-feudalism, I think that's where the presentation does become important. The marketing becomes much more important mm-hmm. for, you know, a financialized um, economy mm-hmm. than an industrialized economy because an industrialized economy is felt through wages. Mm-hmm. You get a wage from the industry that you work for. And if that industry can't produce wages, you're going to be upset. Mm-hmm. But a financialized economy can always reproduce wages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just the problem is where are those wages going? Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, that's that's the right. that's that's the future we're we're talking about. So American wages now they get spent on consumer goods rather than uh, obviously we don't spend it on capital goods. You can't eat steel. Um, and then that money basically just flows to China um, because that's where stuff's made. But I want to. So but before we get into how neo-feudalism is the politics of financialized capitalism, Somebody might be wondering by now when we're going to finally define that. I want to point out one more thing. What industrial capitalist problems that went into fascism and financial capitalist problems have in common. So, and Rachel also had this notion, he called it the social reconsolidation of capitalism. And that's basically the function that the fascists performed, right? The heavy industrialists are going to go bankrupt if they can't pay the debts to the creditors. So you got to find a way to sell steel. You, obviously workers can only buy consumer goods if they have wages, but they don't have wages because they're unemployed, right? Because the economy has come to a halt, but they can't buy capital goods. They can't eat steel. That's why you, you need a war. You need to discipline labor. And so it's convenient. You know, all the people are outraged and angry. So you've got this reactionary rabble. Mm-hmm. All of their savings have just been destroyed through hyperinflation. They're ready to vent their rage on somebody. Okay, so the capitalist class takes the rabble that they produced through wrecking the economy, and they use them as a political party in order to, quote, socially reconsolidate capitalism profitability. Um, That means basically the Nazis used, I'm sorry, the, um, you know, German high capital used the Nazis in order to restore profitability, socially reconstitute capitalism. Mm Social social Democrats did that after the First World War, and then the Nazis did it later. You could say, I mean, that's the same thing now. The people behind the wheel of the of the Fed, the, the condition for their having political power is that they serve finance capital, mm-hmm. right? Like, could you imagine they appoint some, like Powell now is in the Fed. Now next, they're going to appoint somebody they're going to point somebody and then they're going to get into some financial problems where it's like, Oh, you know, we need 7 trillion more dollars or else 
all the asset prices are going to deflate and the economy is going to fall apart and all the financial institutions are going to go bankrupt. And he says, sorry, I'm, I'm a laissez-faire capitalist. Fuck you. It's not going to happen. Right. So the condition for power is that you perform that socially reconsolidating function of capitalism. The difference though, importantly, is that what you're propping up is not an industrial uh, sector, which needs to still sell steel. I mean, if we stopped buying weapons from the American military industrial complex, it would be a contraction in the economy. But if we're just talking about finance, that is not the threat. So we still have social reconsolidation of capitalism. The condition for political power is that you serve capital, but there's that difference. And so, yeah. I mean, the, the part with the U.S. military, though, is that you need to make sure that the rest of the world is on, on board mm-hmm. with that financialization. Because mm-hmm. if they decide that we're just going to... Uh, so the other problem with Germany is that they weren't able... Germany is not a place that's able to produce all of its own goods mm-hmm. where America is. We have the landmass and we have the population to produce everything that America needs to function. So the fear that the industrial markets are never going to have a place to, you know, sell their goods. Um, we have enough markets to sacrifice in order to still be able to keep people fed, clothed and housed. Right. I don't think Germany had that capacity in the 1930s or even less so Italy. Mm-hmm. Um so that also goes against the fear mm-hmm. in America of um, fascism rising. In that but, classical um, shape, right? Right. Um, but, you know, the, the militarism of fascism is still there, which really we shouldn't call fascism because the militarism of fascism is just imperialism. They're, they're one and the same. So um, with that imperialism still being in in so now what is imperialism in service of it's in service of finance right it's mm-hmm. opening up markets where you can um basically sell your currency um so if we're talking about um neo feudalism being on the rise what we're basically talking about is in a neo feudalist uh, economy um is that the military functions as you know, the, um, the, 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 I guess, armed way of securing markets, just like it does if you're doing it for industry is just now the military secures markets in order for you to sell your currency. That's, that's the difference to me. Mm. So, so neo-feudalism, I mean, what we're basically saying is like, all right, all you, uh, worked up, um, what is it? Overwrought, uh, hypertense, anxious, upper middle class, educated people who are thinking that the brown shirts are going to come and take away your, uh, your, uh, Anne Rand or John Stuart Mill or whatever you read and throw you into a labor camp. What we're saying basically is neo feudalism is far more likely. What what is that? Yeah, how do you define neo feudalism? Yeah, I think it's the political form. Uh, I think it's a debtor's economy. Right. It's a rent-seeking economy. That's that's the easiest way to put it to me. I mean... um, The the political form of a society where finance capital is dominant. So Right, to maintain capitalism. Fees, fees, royalties, uh, intellectual property rights, so tech in the fire sector. Right. 
Well, I mean, college you saw, date. Yeah, you saw this in the, I mean, this was big in the 90s with, Clint, I mean, so Clinton balanced the budget in uh, 97. And everyone said, wow, this is, this is an amazing moment because you could balance the budget. There was high productivity. Um, and yet wages never really went up with, with respect to, mm-hmm. pro- with, with respect to productivity in the way that they should have. Well, how is that possible? It's possible because you give a bunch of people lines of credit to mm-hmm. then buy things. And so mm-hmm. you keep wages low, but then you give everyone credit to buy things. Mm-hmm. And so then they're stuck in a sort of insane cycle of mm-hmm. like, you make barely enough to pay for mm-hmm. rent, but then you also have to pay, you know, your mm-hmm. debts on all the things that you bought that you couldn't afford because your wages weren't high enough. And of course, and so they're getting it, you know, finance is getting it from both sides. You know, mm-hmm. you have artificially low wages, but mm-hmm. then you also have interest on all the debt that mm-hmm. people are paying back. And of course you can only, of course the, the federal government can only, how do I say, receive more than it spends, which is to say be in a surplus rather than a deficit, have a balanced budget. If, credit is coming in from somewhere else. Right. And a lot of that was, what was it? Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. You had all that, they had a crisis and all the credit, the money was coming in. It's the only way the government could be in surplus without the private sector in America being in deficit, aggregate deficit was that we were basically pillaging Southeast Asia financially mm-hmm. and private credit creation, which means debt for everybody, which means higher overhead costs and deflating to basically debt deflation. Yeah. Ultimately in the bubble. So I think also um, in the United States, um, how most people are going to feel it. I mean, Southeast Asia is something that you can explain, but um, uh, the way that we paid for debts and most specifically college debt. Um, so I think in the 90s, it was more credit card debt was the driver to keep capitalism going. Oh yeah, And I Big think time. in the 2000s, it's been college debt. Mm-hmm. And what's funny is that the solutions that are often given to college debt um, um, is vouchers rather than making colleges and making them free mm-hmm. um, like they do, like, um, you know, healthcare is another thing rather than making hospitals and making them free. You give people, you know, uh, a credit um, and that goes back into the market um, because we could just produce these things because the VA has hospitals, mm-hmm. right? Even right. And on a smaller scale in Las Vegas, a lot of the unions there make their own hospitals rather than giving. That's how they give people good health care. They have their own hospital networks that they build and they run. Um, so I think when we're talking about neo-feudalism, the way it perpetuated itself through the college market, which you can see, and it does create inflation in those markets because I think it was, I'm not exact, but college debt increased at, so the average rate of inflation in the United States is 3%. The average rate of inflation for college debt was 12% mm-hmm. um, in the 90s and in the 2000s. Yeah. So what that indicates to me is basically with these vouchers and with um, the uh, the grants that you get, oh, that's a way for paying for the overinflation of the college market. And all that does is it um, puts the uh, debt burden of the United States on uh, the average working person. Mm-hmm. And, and even before they become a working person, mm-hmm. you're putting it on college students and you're putting them in perpetual debt from mm-hmm. the moment they become a viable participant in the economy. 
Right. So, yeah. well, college serves a couple of functions. I think one, it keeps the labor market artificially, um, lo- like you, you have fewer people and trying to enter the labor market because everyone has to go to college to mm-hmm. get a four year degree. So and when four- they're overqualified, that, that right. So you're, you're you're already you're out of the labor market for four years. You know, you're not getting out of high school and like going to get a good union job. You know, like my grandfather had, for instance, in the fifties. Um, and so you have four years and then, you know, you're not providing them with an education. They have to take out the loans mm-hmm. to pay for it. And so it's since, all privately debt financed, right? It's all, yeah. And so then what happens with the tuition and everything else is you have a blo- bloated administrative costs that are administering all of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, tuition is being, um, artificially inflated because you have everybody paying for tuition rather than mm-hmm. it just being given to them. You know, it's not, a, it's not decommoditized. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a higher market, obviously the tuition is going to keep going up and up and up. So you, you just have this kind of vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so it just occurred to me, someone might take issue with what I just said, privately debt finance, but I mean, bottom line is people are funding privately their, so private people, I mean, are taking right. out debts, right. which is to say credits and granted it's mediated by the federal government, but who owns those Right. Banks. Debts. Yeah. Private banks. People invest in that retirements. And so if you can't pay it, um, they're going to maybe sink with that ship, but it's all federally guaranteed. I mean, at the end of the day, if you can't pay the the federal government will create more reserves and pay for it. So, I mean, what we see is it kind of like, like you were talking about with the vouchers, Thaddeus. I mean, the, 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 the central bank, the fed, is basically propping up private companies, whether financial or otherwise. You could call it crony capitalism, but it's just, I mean, it's basically just, um, you know, sticking it to worker consumers to, uh, it's it's like the capitalists have captured the financial institution. I think that's the way you'd have to think about it. Like if you, if you translated Son Rathel's account of fascism in, in, in industrial, the industrial monopolistic period of, capitalism into today, mm-hmm. it would be that the capitalists have taken over the public financial institution, the bank, and put it to their own purposes. Yeah. So something came out to me when Adam was saying that um, college takes you out of the market for four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it kind of occurred to me that um, I'm wondering if, so is neo-feudalism the same as indentured servitude? Because Functionally, if they're taking you out of the labor market for four years or six, because uh, now you got to get a master's degree on right. top of that. Yeah. Um, then they're taking you out of the labor market for four to six years minimum. Um, and then on top of that, you're acquiring debt during those four to six years. Mm-hmm. So that adds more years to that indentured servitude because you have to pay off that debt. Mm-hmm. Functionally, they created a, a mechanism to give free labor mm-hmm. or to create indentured servitude almost in the biblical sense of you know it was or in the uh, early american sense of the seven years that you were an indentured servant before Mm -hmm. you could basically become a part of a colony Mm -hmm. um and i'm wondering is is neo-feudalism the same as a sort of indentured servitude economy it seems like it i mean michael hudson calls it debt peonage uh serfdom you know financial serfdom and it seems like it. Obviously, there are differences from old, like feudalism proper, but it would probably be worth unpacking, like 
what's futile about this? Mm -hmm. It might be worth, like, why is this futile? I had a conversation with a Trotskyist, actually not a conversation. It was a stupid Facebook exchange. But he said, where on earth would Michael get the, Hudson get the idea that feudalism is based on rents and fees? Like, Right. Yeah, you know, from Marx, but it's also arguably just true. So we should probably unpack that. Like, what, what's feudal about neo-feudalism? And how is that distinct from, I don't know, 20th century industrial capitalism? I mean, what, what did the... Well, I mean, so with the feudal arrangement, right? You don't own your land. Someone else owns it. You work for it. And you give it, you basically... You work to pay off the rent to sort of live on this mm -hmm. kind of land, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, in a proper sort of industrial setup, you get a wage that is enough mm -hmm. to pay for you to buy your own land or something. Mm -hmm. um, you buy back the products that you Right, and so now, like, you know, we don't, you know, who, you know, I mean, this is, you see this with like the, the millennial um, kind of delayed... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, or extended adolescence. Mm -hmm. No one can afford to buy a home. No one, you know, we're all in our parents' health care until we're 26 mm -hmm. um, because we can't actually afford to properly own anything. We have to work for it and mm -hmm. to pay it off, but mm -hmm. we never actually, we never actually acquire anything in, in the process. Right. I remember seeing that there's a, some Steve Bannon interview. I'm not a fan, but it's just interesting. He said yeah. millennials will never own anything. And that's, I think... Because the economy is so financialized, which is to say, you know, at every corner, there's a fee. We live in a Netflix economy and there are so many costs of living because the exorbitant profits of rent-seeking industries like insurance, you know, real estate, so basically mortgages and so forth. There's so many costs that no one will employ us because it's too expensive to just go to China. Yeah. And we don't have a chance of buying any, of getting anything because no one will employ us. Right. And, you know, if we cut all those costs, which is to say, if we liquidated these rent-seeking sectors of the economy, then then labor could become pretty cheap here again and people could get employed. Well, and that's that's sort of the insidious thing about the, the, the college, you know, what we're talking about with college debt and all this stuff is that if you don't go to college now, mm -hmm. right, what are your options? You know, you, mm -hmm. you're not probably going to land a, a really great union job, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you can get an associate's degree, associate's degree, um, in some kind of technical field, um, or something. But for the most part, your options are like retail, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to work at a fast food restaurant. You're going to mm -hmm. work at a store. Uh, you're going to do the gig, gig economy mm -hmm. kind of stuff. You're going to be a waitress or a waiter at a, at a restaurant. Which means no benefits. Which means no benefits. And also just insanely artificial. I mean, the minimum wage is still, Mm -hmm. 725 or whatever the, the mm -hmm. federal minimum wage i mean obviously that varies by region but the point is is like you're not going to be able to to support yourself on that mm -hmm. in any meaningful way mm -hmm. and so people are sort of coerced into going to college mm -hmm. into, into taking out loans and, mm -hmm. and then they get out and it's still not enough you know yeah and then when you get into debt let's say you let's say you've got a okay let's say somehow you've managed to convince a bank maybe during the crisis they're so desperate to sell a home they'll give you a low rate or whatever, you got a mortgage debt, you got college debt, credit card debt, car debt, medical debt, because you don't have benefits. So you right. go to the hospital, you break your leg, you go to the hospital, and now you got to pay for a ambulance or whatever. 
then you got medical debt. None of that money is going to get spent on goods and services in your local economy. It's going to cut effective demand. And so the debt effectively, the debt burden effectively extracts, I think this is the essence of it, extracts um, all of your income, Mm -hmm. prevents it from being circulated and being spent on goods and services. And it goes to financial institutions, which just reinvested in more speculative things instead of production, which employs people. Right. So on the one hand, basically we've got sort of aggregate surplus value production through producing goods and services. That's the classic capitalist industrial picture. And on the other hand, we've got this fee seeking right. um, kind of capitalism, which doesn't produce aggregate surplus value. It just redistributes it differently. So I have another like kind of question, right? So we've been talking about the economic aspects of fascism and neo-feudalism. But when I asked the original question of, are they functionally the same? Can they produce the same reactions is what I'm asking. So if you have fascism, what it, what it produced or maybe was produced by was, you know, um, a populist rage, Mm -hmm. right? And it perpetuates itself as a chicken and the egg argument, which one is making the other, but we know that it exacerbated Mm -hmm. uh, populist rage, Mm -hmm. right? So if we're living in this neo-feudal economy, um, if there is a breakdown of society like we're seeing, and if it reaches a critical point where people do want to lash out, Mm -hmm. is the result going to be identical to fascism where that populist rage is going to turn into violence and turn into something that is outwardly expressed against, um, you know, minority classes because it's always easier to, um, you know, uh, attack a minority than it is to attack the state. I think that's another part of what fascism was, um, that the people didn't lash out against the state, which would have pushed them towards socialism or communism. They basically lashed out against others. Um, they didn't and that's lash out xenoph- towards capital. They didn't right. lash out. They, they, they worshipped their corporate master. Right. So... Yeah. If there is that same function in neo-feudalism where we talk about the entrepreneur as the pillar of society like we do in the United States, um, that populist rage is going to be turned outwardly not towards the capitalists, but towards the immigrant, for example. So are they Mm -hmm. functionally going to produce the same results is my question. What do you think? I mean, I think it's possible. I mean... I certainly wouldn't be surprised if the kind of resurgence of openly, you know, white nationalist rhetoric is Mm -hmm. tied to that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I suspect, I I mean, it's part, I think it's in part influenced by discourse, you know, with, Mm -hmm. uh, the culture wars, multi, Mm -hmm. you know, multicultural, uh, deference. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, like if you're looking around at, um, for reasons, you know, as to why your life is, isn't going mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. you know, that's going to be the, a very visible and obvious, mm-hmm. you know, you, you think there people are playing favorites basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the psychology of resentment is the psychology that goes on in those problems you're talking about that is. And the question is what makes people resentful? I mean, if you're if you're a 
dyed in the wool liberal, you'll just say, well, nothing. That's, that's just how, that's, that's what they do. And that's bad. They're responsible and they shouldn't do that. But I mean, if you think there's an explanation to be had, which seems to be the only ultimately responsible way to look at this, um, you're going to say, well, what makes, what makes people resentful? Well, misery, poverty, uh, pauperization, um, immiseration, right. Um, seeing somebody have something you don't have and thinking that it's unjust, probably because it is unjust. And so, I mean, I would say if you have such a high burden and so many costs that, for example, you can't get employed with health insurance anymore, you can't, that when we say there's no benefits, that what that means is it would cost McDonald's too much to give everybody health care. And the government doesn't want to give it to people because the insurance lobbyists want to make sure that it doesn't get nationalized because they want those costs. And, and so you go around and around in that vicious circle. I would say absolutely financialization. When you like deregulate global markets, what you're doing is subjecting the entire world to the same interest rate. And you're just decimating, you're just decimating labor. Cause what you're saying is like, if you're not cheaper than workers in Vietnam, then we're not going to employ you. And of course you're not, you can't be, how could you be? Right. And so, That'll, that'll trigger some rage and people aren't all educated at Yale. People aren't, they're particular. They're not as cosmopolitan as liberals would like to think that every human is in it, in their core. Like we're all angels and angels in the bodies of apes. No, people are particular. And when they see that and they don't understand capital, yeah, you're going to have some populist rage. And so I would say the, the, the ethno-nationalist Resentful populist rage, yeah, is triggered by financialization, market deregulation, and so forth. But the question is, is that what we know as fascism? And I would, again, think that fascism is more specific. I'm saying regardless of whether we we recognize it as fascism, I'm talking about, I think, um, what you could say um, is that, 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 um, that that outward um i guess expression of that resentment what mm-hmm. what makes it fascist is um that it's expressed against the other and kind of what you were saying if the financialization basically says that the worker in vietnam is worth more than you as a worker not you know as far as what we're going to pay you but they're mm-hmm. worth more to us we're going to give them a job. They're more worth our while they're more than you are. Yeah. Then it's a lot. If, if that's all people are seeing. Right. And there isn't that resentment is going to be focused towards them rather than focused towards the industry or the government that's allowing mm-hmm. that um, worker in Vietnam to be valued more than them. Well, the China, right. the, the hatred, the hatred, the American hatred for China is basically that, I think. Right. And is that going to lead people to violence towards that Chinese or Vietnamese person? Sure. Rather than that violence being expressed towards the capitalist. Right. Because sure. sure. that's what would make it fascist. It's that alignment with the capitalists. Your resentment is aligning with the capitalists to basically save them. Because you don't want to blame them because capitalism is good. They're the good people. And the reason why those good people aren't doing good things for me is because they value this other person more than they value me, Mm -hmm. which means I need to either remove that other Mm -hmm. person 
and in in effect devalue them mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Uh, rather than you know devaluing the influence that we allow the capitalists to have well the question that seems there to is, be fascist yeah. well that's the me. question is that fascist and i i think it seems to me that if what we saw in the 20th century that that just ruined so many lives and so many things in so many ways if that's what fascism is then i don't think that that's the same i don't think that what you're talking about is fascism i think that's more like um resentful local idiots pardon me yeah. i mean who who they don't understand either through cognitive failure or through you know self self-deception or dishonesty they'd rather just blame an immigrant than a capitalist because they want to be one or something i don't know what maybe they just don't understand capital as a global system and they think it's a particular individual anti-semitism is kind of like that it's not capital it's jews or something that's a either a, a cognitive error or a bad theory whatever you want to call it but i mean i don't i mean let's say you just you're blaming the so-called other instead of the capitalist i think that's maybe necessary for fascism, but that's not sufficient, is it? Because it doesn't war belong to fascism? I mean, so... Well, I mean, it, it seems to me that there's a, uh, a qualitative uh, distinction between blaming those people and resenting them and um, like exterminating them. Like mm. wanting to just you know collectively decide we're going right. to remove so these genocide people. yeah like there's a difference between closing the borders and saying i i, I want fewer immigrants here because it's mm-hmm. suppressing wages mm-hmm. then it is then like we should kill those fucking people and make sure that they can never mm-hmm. you know yeah i think a lot of the american left would call you a fascist for saying close the border uh they do definitely do but closing the border is not the same as death squads obviously right right and what I'm saying is, can neo-feudalism produce the um, the 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 drive to want to want to eradicate mm. those people, which sure. would make that it have possible. the same function as fascism? I'm talking about the the results of these. So there right. is the the economic political definition of these things, mm-hmm. but there's also the results of these things. That's how most people tend to see these things. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. And if they are comparable in their result um, with genocide, mm. because other things can produce genocide too. Um, but I think it is the um, the ethno populism that people identify when that becomes genocidal. Mm. Mm-hmm. That is fascist, mm-hmm. rather than um, you know. Um, I don't know what would be an example. Um, something like um, um, theocratic um, mm. uh, uh, genocide is mm-hmm. is another thing that in history has produced genocide. That's the, not yeah. fascist. The effects but, of colonialism, for instance, make people often genocidal towards one another. Right. But that's yeah. just genocide in service of producing capital, right? That's genocide in the service of um, a ruling class or a state, whereas we're talking about genocide as a result of, you know, ethno populism is seems to be a characteristic of fascism that can be replicated in um, uh, neo feudalism because the difference between those other forms of genocide 
is that there is it's a top down version of genocide, um, whereas the fascist version that creates genocide is very much bottom up. You create a populist fervor and anger and resentment that causes that populace to commit to genocide, not just the state. The state just tweaks it and it, and it makes it more um, uh, efficient, whereas you know, the other ones, the state just implements it so that they can, you know, sell their shit, their religion or their products, you know, mm. whereas, you know, the, the fascist version is an outlet for the, the populist movement. We're going to have this genocide so that you people can, you know, have an outlet for your resentment and your anger. But again, I don't think that's fascism. I think that's something that has existed I mean, that's like a general phenomenon. In civilization, humans are repressed. They're resentful. They don't have what they want to have. They're bitter at other people they blame because they wish they could have it better, give their kids something, blah, blah. And then they, then they blame somebody and they misplace that anger. I don't, I don't think it ever happened before fascism in, in, in the systematic way that it did. I don't think it was that systematic aversion of the blame. Well, I mean, I'm getting beyond my expertise, but it, I mean, there were definitely... I mean, there were definitely these kinds of things. I mean, a pogrom is like that, isn't it? I mean, at any rate, it seems definitely true that financialized capitalism and um, neo-feudalism could trigger this kind of stuff. The question is, could it just ever be facilitated on an institutional scale to the extent that it was? And I don't know how that could be because, I mean, what made that happen was the industrial capitalist complex. like. Mm -hmm. Why did they use these products to do that mm. terrible stuff? Well, it's because it was what right. was laying around and had to be sold. Um, but like, we're seeing that now too with the military, with not with, with the prison industrial complex. Sure. Right. So, so I seeing, would say, yeah, we could look at that and we could say this is fascist economy. Um, but the question is, is it fascism like we saw it in the? No, I don't think we're ever going to see fascism like we saw in Germany and in, in Europe. I don't think we're going to see that form of fascism. But if we're seeing, you know, the old saying, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, is it a duck? You know, it, it, yeah, it's 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 a fucking duck. So if you're <laughs> having all of the re the results, if, if all of the things that, that are resulting from the ethno populism are similar to the results of fascism, then call it fascism except I mean, for that thing that you just said you don't think is going to happen what thing uh you said it's not going to be like it was in the 30s i mean we're not N no it's not going to be based off of industry but you're still going to have the genocide and the murder potentially well, right potentially i don't know i mean okay so let's talk about perspectives there are basically two in the marxist tradition there are two views and one is by this guy dimitrov who was a so soviet and I think the way he defines fascism, we could still see that. Um, and the way Son Rathold sees fascism, I don't think we'll see that. And I, this, this most famous statement from Dimitrov is um, from a Seventh World Congress. He says, fascism, quote, fascism is the open terrorist dictatorship of the most reactionary, most chauvinist, and most imperialist elements of finance capital, uh, end quote. So... That I think you could see in neo-feudalism. Hmm. Arguably, that's that's what's happening. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
the question is whether that's capitalism, the socialization of the production process, but not the appropriation process. The other important feature, I think, of capitalism as we've known it until now is that at the aggregate level of the economy, there's more value in it at the end than there is at the beginning. It's fundamentally a process of production of surplus value, not just goods and services, commodities. And so the question is whether, you know, if, if you have these extractive, non-productive sectors of the economy, they become so predominant that they actually strangle out the, the, um, the industrial foundation that produces that surplus value, such that, you know, you have so many costs you can't reinvest and accumulate, um, then we might actually be, you know, that surplus value production process might be extinguished and we might go into a purely extractive hmm. neo-feudal situation, which, I mean, doesn't yeah. seem like it would be capitalism anymore in the classical sense of producing surplus value. So what you're saying is socialists need to save capitalism. If you think neo-feudalism is worse than capitalism, it seems like, yes. I mean, both Marx and Keynes thought that the industrial function of capital would take predominance over and subsume the, the financial. And that has not happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say what probably is going to happen is this. Increasing financialization, increasing privatization, increasing deregulation. You're going to have private gated communities protected by private police forces over, you know, over which there, you know, there's no oversight and there's no accountability to citizens. Citizenship, let's say, even privatize it. And then mm -hmm. you just have these little pockets of fire sector, tech elites. Um, Pullman towns. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, yeah, you have the company store for the workers, but basically you're going to have pockets of private wealth and it'll be like little feudal fiefdoms. Mm -hmm. And then every once in a while, the workers will get upset and they'll do some terrible heinous shit, but it just seems like it's going to be doubled down financialization and more gated communities. I mean, and the worse it gets, the more they'll, you know, try to look, you know, you'll, you'll have some ideology in these communities to make them look tolerant and so forth, but it, it'll just be doubling down on that. I don't know. What do you see happening? <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Um, I don't know. I wanted to close it out with this, but um, I was going to, I was, I was reading an article um, and it's kind of about something we talked about before. Um, maybe it, not on the podcast, but I think uh, me and you, Daniel, with, with Kevin, and we were talking about um, how does capitalism perpetuate itself in the future with people dying earlier? Well, I just heard about a study where they're able to extend the lifespan of human beings because the reason why you age is because your telomeres uh, shrink on your cells, right? As they divide, the telomeres get smaller and smaller. Well, they did a study. It's very new. Um, it was with 25 people. And um, they put people in a hyperbaric chamber. So basically, you deoxygenate. So detox your body. And then they put oxygen back into your body. And it extended the telomeres by 20%. So I don't know what that equals in years of life. Mm -hmm. But what we're talking about with Kevin is that if we're able to produce a working class that can live to 190, 200 years old, mm -hmm. that's a boom for yeah. capitalism. 
So if there is something to this research and, you know, now every uh, company is giving their employees time at the beginning of work in the hyperbaric chamber to extend their lives. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, that's that's more neo-feudalism for you. Rent out the hyperbaric chamber, live a little bit longer, work a lot longer. Boom. Good deal. <laughs>